Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Daniel chapter 9, and you'll find that on page 746 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. If you're looking through your Bible, you've got um, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and right after Ezekiel, you'll find Daniel. We'll be looking at Daniel chapter 9 this morning, and just take a moment and, and review the, the series that we just began last Sunday. We're getting refocused at the outset of a new year on some of the basics of Christianity. And the three things that we're focusing on in the next um, week or so are the Word of God, prayer, and fellowship. Those are really, if you boil down the Christian life to three elements, I think those would be a very helpful summary of the three basics of the Christian life. The Word of God, uh, receiving it, meditating upon it, believing it, obeying it, uh, responding to God's Word in prayer, as we just saw in the children's sermon, talking back to God in light of Him talking to us in the Scriptures, and then fellowship, working that out uh, in life together as believers in Christ and as we go into the world and take the, the marvelous good news of Jesus to uh, the lost and dying that so desperately need to hear it, just like us. And so last week we focused on Psalm chapter 1, and we, we considered the blessedness of delighting in Scripture. And, and this morning, the link between last week's sermon and today's sermon uh, is this. When we go to Scripture, and when we hear God speak to us, when we encounter the, the sovereign supremacy of God over all things in the Bible, we should be moved to go to this God in prayer. That's the link. It begins with Scripture where we see Him and we savor Him for all that He's worth. It draws us to go to this marvelous God in Christ in prayer, just as we find Daniel doing here in Daniel chapter 9. So look with me at Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to read the entire chapter. This is, it's, a, it's a longer chapter. It really breaks up into two pieces. You've got the prayer going in through verse 19, but then you've got God's response to Daniel's prayer. So it would be tough to read this without at least going into the response of the prayer. So bear with us. We're going to read the whole passage. I'll read it for us here, beginning uh, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. This is God's word. To us. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of God, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then, verse 3, I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer and pleas of mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned. 
and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near, and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore... The Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. And have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we've done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, Pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now that's Daniel's prayer. And now look what happens in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, For the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. Marvelous. 
God heard his prayers. A word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 years, an anointed one shall come or shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many. For one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. And let's pray to him now. Thank him for his word. Confess our sins to him. And ask him to bless our time together. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word. Every word of God proves true. Even the difficult passages are all true. And we thank you for the word. We confess our sin to you that individually and, and corporately here as a people, none of us have treated your word with the honor and reverence and holy fear that it deserves. But we thank you so much for King Jesus, of whom we read of in this passage, who came and was cut off for sinners like us. So that in him, by faith, we might receive every word of God as, as a saving act in our lives. So help this time together be for your glory and the good of your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have one main point this morning I want to make. And it's this meditating. We saw that last week, didn't we, from Psalm 1. Meditating, thinking about contemplating, stewing over, just letting it seep in, the Word of God, meditating in Scripture on the supremacy of God over all things should fuel and form our prayers. That's the main point I want to I get at. That meditating upon the supremacy of God over all things as we read of it in Scripture should drive us, should stir us up to pray, and it should form the content of our prayers. That's, that's the point I want to make this morning. And I want to show this to you uh, from Daniel 9 by considering three things. I want to look at the basis of Daniel's prayer, the content of Daniel's prayer, and then the response to Daniel's prayer. If you're taking notes, that'll be the outline that we'll follow this morning. The basis of Daniel's prayer, verses 1 through 4, the content of Daniel's prayer, verses 4 through 19, and then the response to Daniel's prayer, verses 20 through 27. I think as we look at those three things, it'll unpack for us how a Christ-centered, God-centered view of His supremacy over everything will fuel our hearts and form a vibrant prayer life 
to him. So let's, let's look then, beginning in verse 1, and let's consider the basis of Daniel's marvelous prayer that we see here in Daniel chapter 9. So if you look with me at verse 1, the first thing you'll notice is that this is taking place in the first year of Darius. So just a bit about the background and context, because I think it's helpful here to know where we're at in the life of David and the life of God's people, Israel, and the, the span of global salvation history. The, the name Darius is, we're, we're a little bit unclear as to who that refers to. There's a couple of good options here. It's, it may be an official, a general appointed by King Cyrus of Persia, or it may just be a Babylonian throne name that Cyrus took for himself. Uh, there's good evidence on both sides, but whichever one it is, here's what we know for sure. This is taking place around the year 539 B.C. Why is that important? 539 B.C. Well, this is shortly after the Babylonian Empire has fallen to the new Medo-Persian Empire. The great Babylon that we read so much of uh, in the prophets and in Daniel itself has fallen, according to God's word, to the Medo-Persian Empire. This is roughly seven decades after the first wave of exiles were taken into captivity to Babylon. Now, if you recall, the Babylonians attacked uh, Israel, or attacked the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, not once, but three times. Right? The, the one we most commonly remember was in 586. That was maybe the, the, the biggest one. Uh, that's when Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed. Right, that was actually the third wave of exiles. There were two before that. In 597, there was a second wave. But the first wave of exiles, the first attack against God's people from Babylon, took place in 605 B.C. Again, we're, we're talking roughly seven decades before what happens here in Daniel chapter 9. And if you read back in Daniel chapter 1, you'll learn that Daniel was among those first wave of exiles. And he was just a youth at the time. So here Daniel was before Babylon attacked Jerusalem. He's there. He gets captured. He's taken into exile along with a number of others. And then he spends the rest of his adult life in captivity in Babylon. And then we read here in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's probably in his 80s at this point. He's seen a lot. He's been through a lot. You can read the book of Daniel and see what God had done in this man's life. And he's to this point now, the Persians are in control. Babylon has fallen. It's been about 70 years. And Daniel is reading scripture. Now, now before we look at what he's reading, let me just make a, a side application here. Daniel is in his 80s at this point. I think that reminds us that we never get too old to be used by God for his glory, do we? And I think that's one of the challenges of, of, of age is to feel like, well, we've just moved beyond usefulness. But I just want to remind you, maybe there's somebody in your life you can remind, that God uses people in their 80s and their 90s. As, as long as you're here on this earth and you have the wherewithal to be uh, in prayer and be in the Word, God can use you and wants to use you for His glory. So maybe you can take this passage and encourage someone this week that you might know. But this is what Daniel does. He's in his 80s. The Persians are now in control. He's looking around at his 
circumstances. And he's looking at Scripture. The one who was himself a prophet. That's amazing. Who had direct revelation from God. This man knows where to go to hear God speak. Even the marvelous revelations that we read of in Daniel, they didn't happen every day. The normal way in which God was speaking to his people was in the Word. And we saw that last week. But Daniel went to Scripture in in order to receive a word from the Lord. And look at what he got. Verse 2. And I saw, excuse me, verse 2. And in the year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel was reading scripture. And specifically, I think he was reading Jeremiah 25 and 29. These are these two places in Jeremiah where we read of what Daniel was reading of. You can do what Daniel did. You can sit down in your Bibles later today and you can read Jeremiah 25 and read Jeremiah 29. And you can see the same things from the text that Daniel was seeing so many years ago. And what did he see? Well, in Jeremiah 25, God promises that he will end the reign of Babylon in 70 years. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, verse 11, and these nations shall serve king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. And it goes on. So what is Daniel seeing? Daniel just saw the empire crumble. And he's reading in Scripture that that's exactly what God said he would do. And now what's next? Well, we look at Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. He's talking to God's people. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's the end of the exile. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God promised his people that the exile would end after 70 years and that he's going to bring his people back and he's going to set his face against them for good. And they're going to pray to Him. They're going to seek Him. And guess what? They're going to find Him. Now, when Daniel reads this, he sees in these passages and in others the sovereign supremacy of God over all things. God is in complete control of Babylon. In complete control of the Persian Empire. He's totally sovereign over Cyrus or Darius. And in every circumstance, over every individual, in human history, God is supremely sovereign over all of these things. And for Daniel, that fueled prayer. Daniel goes to the supremacy of God as the basis for his prayer. It wasn't a barrier to Daniel's prayers. Isn't that how we tend to think about the sovereignty of God? The question is often raised, if God is sovereign, why pray? Have you ever heard that question? Have you ever asked that question? 
if the future is already predetermined by God, then what difference does prayer make? Right? Have you heard that? Well, the answer is from Scripture is this. God really is sovereign over everything. And prayer really does matter. Let me just give you a, a couple of... Uh, a couple of illustrations of this from Daniel itself. Just go back a few chapters to Daniel chapter 4. Because what people often will do as they wrestle with this question about prayer and the supremacy of God is they'll get rid of one or the other. They'll say one isn't true to the detriment, we'll see, of the other. But Daniel 4 is very clear. There's so many places in the Bible. There's so many places in Daniel we could go just to see the supremacy of God over everything. But just look at Daniel 4. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. After he's come to his senses, after God humbled this man, eating grass, okay, took away his, his reason. It returns to him. And look, look at the, the enemy of God now recognizes who was really in control. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion, his sovereignty, is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35, look with me. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That's us. That's human beings. That's our wills. That's our futures. That's our situations. Nations. Kings. Individuals. God is sovereign over all of it. He doesn't just have control over the sun, the moon, the stars, and the number of hairs on our head. Yes, he has all of that under his control, but he has control over every decision, over every choice. Yes, we have free will, but he has foreordained all of that. He controls everything, every circumstance, everything you face in your life. God has complete and total, absolute control over all of it. Even this pagan king was brought to recognize that, and all he could do was praise God for it. There's so many places we can go in Scripture to, to show this. But the second point I want to make is this, and it's that prayer, in light of all of this, prayer really does matter. Daniel had a very high view of the sovereignty of God. He would have considered himself to be a Reformed believer when it comes to the sovereignty of God. He would have looked at the supremacy of God over all things and praised Him for it. And the one who knew so much about God's sovereignty and supremacy over all things is the one who is driven, in verse 9, to prayer. He believed in, he preached, he witnessed the supremacy of God over all things, and yet Daniel prayed. And we'll see a little later that God heard his prayer. The sovereign God of the universe hears our prayers and responds to them. In fact, he's not even done praying before God response. And if this is a struggle for you, if you're trying to put these things together, if you're wrestling with this notion of God's sovereignty, let me just, just encourage you to consider the alternative for a moment. Just think about it for a moment. What if God isn't sovereign 
over everything? What if he doesn't have control over every situation, over every major decision in your life, or in the lives of of rulers of nations? What if he didn't have control over the heart of Cyrus or Nebuchadnezzar? What if he didn't have control over your circumstances, what you're dealing with, what you're going through, your future? If he doesn't have power to control all things, he doesn't have the power to answer your prayers. Did you know that? If your situation isn't under God's absolute, total control, then, then your circumstances are just the result of purposeless chance. That's the only alternative. If God isn't control, in control of the future, then what hope do you have that he can bring about your future for your good and for his glory? The, the alternative is pretty bleak, isn't it? Now, what we do as Christians is we run into these passages that speak of the sovereignty of God and we prayerfully ask God to help us enjoy it, thank Him for it, rest in Him because of it, trust in Him because of it, go to Him because of it. Because He has the power to to overrule in your circumstances, whatever you're dealing with. Because Daniel believed in the absolute sovereignty of God, he believed God could keep his promises. That's why Daniel prayed. And that's why we should pray, right? God is sovereign and prayer really does matter. That's the basis of Daniel's prayer life. He rested everything on it. But now, let's take a moment and consider the content now of Daniel's prayer. Look at verses 4 through 19. This, this lengthy prayer recorded for us in Scripture teaches us much about how we should be praying. What should be the content of the godly person's prayers? Well, you may have heard of the Acts model of prayer. Some of you have heard of that before. It's a very helpful tool for striking a balance in our prayer lives. Acts is just shorthand for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication or petition. So praising God, confessing our sin to Him, thanking Him, and then asking God for things. Now, not every prayer needs to meet that criterion. Not all biblical prayers follow the Acts model rigidly. Okay, I'm not saying we have to do that, but in general, as a whole... I think the Acts model should characterize our prayer life. I think otherwise we're going to find ourselves very imbalanced when it comes to prayer. We're going to be always asking for things and never saying thank you. You ever catch yourself? I know I catch myself doing that. Do you ever catch yourself doing that? The first thing you do when you come to God is prayer is just ask, 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 ask. And you take very little time thanking Him. The Acts model reminds us to thank God for things. Or maybe you're always confessing sin. All you can do is just confess sin and confess sin, but you're never adoring God. You're never taking time just to stop and reflect on the gospel. The Acts model is so helpful for us, and I think it's very biblical. Daniel's prayer very much reflects this model, as I want to show us. He, He doesn't spend as much time on thanksgiving. I think we could, we could argue that it's implied in verse 15. So we're, we're not going to hold a, uh, Daniel rigidly to this model. But even in his adoration, he's thanking God, I think. It reflects both. 
But let's see in particular how, how Daniel's prayer is a prayer of adoration, confession, and supplication. Let's look at those three things. The supremacy of God over all things drove Daniel in prayer to adore God. That's how Daniel begins, right? Verse 4. Before he does anything, before he asks for anything, before he even confesses his sin, look at verse 4. He adores God. I prayed to the Lord and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God. The first thing Daniel's mind goes to is the supremacy of God over everything. And he just goes to prayer and he adores God in what he says. And I think he focuses in this prayer on, on two things that he, that he zeroes in on to adore, to magnify, to praise God. And it's God's character and it's God act, his, his acts. Look at, look at verse 4. He, he praises God for how awesome he is and how great he is. Right? God's character in verse 7, that he is righteous. He focuses on God being merciful and forgiving, verse 9. He is taken with the character of his God. And he just praises God in prayer. He thinks of God's character. He also thinks about God's acts. Verse 4, the one who faithfully keeps covenant. He keeps his promises. Verse 12, he, he kept his promise even to judge his people. He will judge the wicked. He is just. Verse 15, he, he, he recalls the fact that God redeemed Israel from Egypt. And then he just sums it all up, verse 16. He speaks of all your righteous acts in verse 16. Daniel adored God because of his character and because of his acts. But secondly, he confessed his sin. And we just talked about this in Sunday school. Any time a sinner comes into the majestic, awesome presence of God, they immediately recognize His holiness and their sin. And so immediately we're brought to confession. And I think Daniel does this, again, in two ways. I think he focuses on the breadth of sin, but also the depth of sin. Verse 7, the breadth, here, the, the universality, the scope of sin. The men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem... All Israel, those who are near and those who are far off in all the lands to which you have driven them, verse 7. Open shame. Verse 8, our kings, our princes, our fathers. Verse 11, again, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. Verse 20, Daniel's part of this group. He's praying on behalf of the people. But he very much acknowledges his own sin here, doesn't he? While I was speaking, verse 20, and praying, notice what it says, confessing my sin and the sins of my people, Israel. Now, you go back and read Daniel. You read the character of this man. You read the, the times that he stood firm for the faith. He didn't compromise. In the face of death, this man remain faithful to the Lord, and yet he recognizes that even he is a sinner in desperate need of God's mercy. Not one of us are free from sin. 
But look at the depth of sin. Just look at the words Daniel uses to describe the sin of his people. He speaks of sinning, doing wrong, acting wickedly, rebellion, turning aside, not listening. He speaks of treachery. He speaks of disobeying, transgressing, and so on. I mean, he's really piling up the words here, isn't he? He's really getting at the depth of sin. And I, I think it's, it's helpful to remember, when we confess sins, we need to be specific, don't we? It's a good thing to, to pray generally, but it's also a very good thing to pray specifically. When you catch yourself in sin, like me, try to remember Daniel here. Try to remember to take that moment then and confess to the Lord what you've done. Be specific. Isn't that how we like to have people confess sin to us? When they've wronged us, they, we like to hear them say, you know what? Will you forgive me for doing this to you? I want, I want you to know that I understand what I did wrong and the ways that I sinned against you, and I want to ask you for forgiveness for that. Daniel was specific. So he, he adores God, he confesses his sin to God, and then, lastly, okay, he comes to petition or supplication. And what does Daniel ask for? Well, Daniel asks God to do what God promised to do. God had promised that he would be merciful to his people. He promised he would bring them out of exile. He reads the text. He sees the promise. And as one commentator put it, Daniel was like a man who had a check from God. He was determined to cash. He had this promise and he's bringing it to God and saying, God, keep your promise. He knows God is going to do this. And yet he asks anyway. He asks because he knows. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I, the only illustration I can give, and it's, you know, take it for what it's worth, is if, if I promised my son one afternoon that we're going to play Wii tonight, he likes to, he likes to play Wii, but I promised him we're going to play Wii, but I'm thinking that's going to be about 7.30, he's thinking it's going to be two minutes from now. Right? I've made a promise to my son, and it's okay if he comes back to me later and says, Dad, just want to remind you of your promise. Now, where that becomes an unhelpful illustration is when it becomes every five minutes, right? And I do the same thing. We just do it in an adult way, don't we, right? But there's everything right about going to God, our Heavenly Father, and saying, Lord, you've promised. Not in an impatient way or in a disbelieving way. God, I know your character. I've just praised you for it. I know your acts. I know your track record. I know your promise. And I'm bringing this promise to you that you will never leave me and never forsake me. In light of what I've done, keep your promise, Lord. If I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me of all. Lord, keep your promise to me. Lord, you promised you'd never leave me. But it feels like you've left me. Lord, keep your promise. That's what God's people do. We bring to God the promises. We take that promise like a check from God that we are bound and determined to cash. So he asks for what God promised, but he asks for God's glory. Just look at verse 19. He doesn't, he doesn't focus on the plight of the people. And this, these are very difficult circumstances for Israel. He doesn't mention their homesickness. He doesn't mention the ridicule they get day in and day out. He doesn't mention the difficulties that they deal with. What does he mention? Verse 19. He speaks of doing this... For your own sake, for your city, for your people, 
who are called by your name. He is focused upon the supremacy of God. And that's why he asks. He is bound and determined that God get the glory for what he's asking for. You know, I was listening to a sermon by Vaughn Roberts on this passage, and he gave a very helpful illustration. He spoke about the, the stadiums you go to that have a big name on it from the, um, from the cell phone company or, or from the, the bank or whatnot. So think of Progressive Ballpark up in Cleveland where the Indians play. Progressive Ballpark, Progressive Auto Insurance, right? So when you go to that ballpark, you're supposed to look at the greatness and grandeur of the ballpark and think that's what Progressive products are like, right? Now, what would you think about the company if the big progressive sign, right, was burned out and part of the letters were falling off and the, the stadium was just in complete disrepair, right? What does that say about the company, right? Or the other illustration I thought of is, is my dad growing up was always very meticulous about his grass. And there was always this one spot he couldn't get to grow. And, and I understand that now that I've owned a home and have my own grass problems. It's just a Barclay thing. But still, we try very hard because when we look at that outside of the house, that reflects something about us. And I think that's what Daniel's getting at. He's saying, look at the city. This is your city. This has your name on it. Look at these people. These are your people. And the talk around the town is, well, what kind of a God would let that happen to his place and to his people? He is bent on God showing everyone his greatness and glory by redeeming his people, restoring his place, and showing his greatness. That should be characteristic of the way we ask for things from God. Why not be thinking first and foremost about his glory? Now that connects with our good, doesn't it? Right? The people are coming out of exile. That's good for them, but the, the focus... Is the glory of God. So what then is the response? Verse 20. While Daniel is still speaking and praying, God answers his prayers. Sometimes it feels like we don't get those answers. Like he's not hearing us. Weeks, months, years go on. And the thing that we ask for, we just don't see happening. But I want you to know, this text says, the moment in Christ you pray... God hears. Right now, wherever you are, when you pray to him, God hears. Now, the answer may not be in your timing. But I want you to know, God hears the prayers of his people. We take that for granted, don't we? We just assume that's that's God's job, right? He has to hear prayers. But just think about that for a minute. What if God didn't hear your prayers? What if there was an iron sky and every time the prayer went up, it just bounced right back down. Have you, have you ever been caught somewhere? I mean, we, we, I found myself in these situations when I was little, but I, I do that sometimes when I'm working in the attic or somewhere. And you get stuck or you get called or, or you're in trouble and you call out for help. And then you realize that no one's hearing you. How awful that is. If you're a child, I'm sure you, you, you probably can remember that. How awful would it be to be here on this earth and every time you call out to God, have no hope that he hears you. Well, that, friends, in Christ will never happen to us. You know why? 
Because the one on the cross who cried out and didn't get a response is the one who did that for us. So that every time we cry out to God, he hears us. And so Daniel prays. He gets a word from God. Daniel, I have heard your prayer. And what does God do? Verses 24 through 27, God reassures Daniel with the gospel. Now, these are very difficult verses. And I'm not going to spend time focusing on these verses because I don't think that's what God wants us to focus on in this passage. But let me just say a couple of things about it. What are these 70 weeks here? Or if you have an NIV, it might say 77s. Okay, this is biblical Old Testament prophecy. Just a, a very, very brief explanation of what I think this is referring to and then the cash payout for this. What, is it, what does it mean for us? I think what Daniel's doing is he's looking at the 70 years are almost up. God promised to bring Israel back. And then Gabriel, by the way, it's the same Gabriel, same angel that comes and visited Mary and, and we read of in the early Gospels we just focused on a few weeks ago. Same angel. He comes to Daniel and says, yeah, the 70 years are about up, but there's much, much more to go. At the end of all things, is it going to happen when God's people go back to Israel? There's a, a lot more upcoming. Not just 70 years, but 77s he speaks of. And essentially, I think what he's telling Daniel is that there's going to be the return from exile. There's going to be a period of time until the coming of Christ. And he's the one, verse 24, who is going to, he's going to put an end to transgression, an end to sin. He's going to atone for iniquity. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's the one, verse 26, he's going to be cut off. He's going to have nothing. Christ died. He didn't have his clothes. They were gambling for his clothes. He was cut off for his people so that we never would be. There's going to be a time then Christ is going to come. And then the next big event in salvation history is going to be the second coming of Christ when he brings in this everlasting righteousness. When he comes to bring a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah, there are going to be some things before that. I think he's probably talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 here. But the, the, the key point is this. God is going to keep his promise to send a Messiah to save his people from their sins. And we're in that interadvental period. Christ has already come. And we read this text and so many others and we bank on the fact that He is coming back. Isn't it amazing how at the end of Revelation, after we're told so much of the certainty of Christ's second coming, what's the prayer of John? Come, come Lord Jesus. A lot more can be said about the 70 weeks, but let me just say two quick things about answers to prayer. Number one, God doesn't need them. He doesn't need you for anything. And that may be belittling to us, but I think when we decrease and he increases, that's our joy as God's people. Think about it. What if he did need you? Would, would you want the ruler of the universe to be dependent on you for anything? I, I know I don't. We're dependent on him for everything. That's why 24, 26, 27, these verses talk about the decree of God. All of these things are in God's plan and purpose, decreed from the... For the foundation of the world. 
He doesn't depend on our prayers to accomplish his purposes, but he does use our prayers to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that marvelous? To think about that, the God of the universe, who controls everything, who has ordained everything, he's going to use your prayers for his glory and for his ends. Have you ever prayed for an entire people group, as we did just earlier? An entire region of the world? And you think, how could a little small person like me and my little tiny prayer mean anything in the global scheme of things? What Daniel is praying for happened in, in human history. Daniel's praying for the Messiah to come back and God answers his prayer. When you pray that Jesus would come back, do you know God's going to answer that prayer and he's going to use your prayers as a means to accomplish those ends? See, God ordains not just the ends... Not just the answers to our prayers, but he even ordains the prayers themselves. And so we have so much confidence that us here in this place could have global impacts for the glory of God in human history. I want you to think about your prayers in that way. That God really is sovereign and your prayers really do matter. He gets more glory that way and you get more joy that way. That's why he says to Daniel, Daniel, remember, you are greatly loved. Four implications and then we're done. Four implications for prayer. Number one, read and meditate upon the word of God. Do you find it hard to pray like I do? Go to the Word. Are you struggling to stir up desires for God to pray? Go to the Word. Look at His supremacy. Look at His acts. Look at His character. Look at salvation history. Look intently at Christ. Spurgeon said, pray more if you need to pray more. Pray for more prayer. Daniel 9 saying, immerse your mind in Scripture. If you're struggling to pray, just, God, help me pray more. If that's all you can get out, then that, that's what you get out. But go to the Word. Second, pray in light of the Scriptures. Scripture should spur our prayers, but it should also shape them. Pray for the things that Daniel prayed for. Pray for the things that Scripture tells us to pray for. We have a lot of commands in Scripture to pray for things. Go to those commands and pray those things. Look at these model prayers like Daniel. Go to the Lord's Prayer, like we pray every Sunday. Look at the prayers of Paul in the epistles. Go to the Psalms. Pray the Word. If there's a command, confess to the Lord when you encounter that command in the Bible that you haven't kept it and ask for God's help to keep it. When you run across a promise, claim it. Thank God for it in Jesus' name for what He did for it. Be in the prayer, or be, be in the word, and be praying the word. Third, strive for balance, as we said earlier. And I think this will follow from one and two. If you're praying what the word tells us to pray for, if you're modeling your prayers off the prayers of Scripture, you're going to strike balance in your prayer life. Use the Acts model. Pray with others. Strive for balance in your prayer life. And fourth, and this this is where we're going to close. Always. Always keep in view the supremacy of Christ. Why do we end our prayers in Jesus' name? And it's not just a formula that we use. Jesus said, John 16, 24, Until now you've asked nothing in my name. 
Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Well, Jesus is the only God to whom we can go in prayer. As we just sang, He is the only way, the truth, and the life. But secondly, Jesus is the only one who deserves to be answered for your prayers. Did you know that? That's why Daniel 9.18 says, We don't present our pleas because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Here's how a Christian says that. Looking back at the finished work of Christ, we don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. That's how Christians pray. Because of the great mercy He purchased for us on the cross. Now, if you don't know that mercy this morning, I just invite you to call upon Christ in prayer right now. Confessing your sin to Him and asking Him to forgive you, not because of your righteousness, but because of His righteousness. His Word promises you that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And in light of this promise and for the glory of Christ, let's call upon Him now. Let's pray. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name, thanking You for the gift of prayer, for the gift of the Word, for the greatness of Your glory, and for how sinners like us can come to an all-holy God in light of everything Jesus has done for us and just plead Your mercy. So we do that now. In the mighty and powerful name of King Jesus, amen.